listening to a podcast by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. This podcast is produced for people affected by a blood cancer. We will speak to experts about current topics such as treatments, diagnosis, and research. We will also hear personal stories from people affected by a blood cancer. Please note that this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Welcome to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada's podcast on acute myeloid leukemia or AML. This podcast is part of a series to inform people affected by a blood cancer. My name is Sarah Khan and I'm the Community Engagement Manager for Ontario with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. Today I'm speaking with Michael Cornicook. Michael is one of our First Connection peer support volunteers. He's an AML survivor based out of Ottawa with a 35-year career in the education sector. He's a proud grandparent who now enjoys his spare time traveling and building miniature houses for model kits. Michael, thank you for joining me today and sharing your experience. Thank you so much for having me on and so I can share my experiences with you. I am a 77-year-old former educator, but now I'm a 16-year AML survivor. Back in 1999, I retired from 35 years as a teacher, principal, and school board director. Then I began working as an educational consultant for the Ghanasatagi Mohawk community in Oka, Quebec. In the spring of 2003, I started to feel extremely tired and weak. My wife and I had just sold our house, which was right outside of Montreal, Okay. And we're moving to Ottawa in just a few weeks. While visiting my family doctor to have some medications renewed until we found a new physician in Ottawa, he asked me how the move was going. I told him about my complaints, the fact I was extremely tired and weak. He said, well, you know, moving is very, very stressful. But he did ask if I had any other issues or complaints. I casually mentioned to him that my gums were bleeding. He immediately requisitioned a blood test that I should have that very afternoon. Well, the next day he called me and said to go to the hospital as he diagnosed either mononucleosis, which he kind of doubted at my age at the time, or leukemia. The white blood count indicated that there was quite an issue. What was the process like when you were in the process of being diagnosed? He said that I should go with my wife to the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. My wife actually drove me to the hospital, and um, I was immediately admitted. My white blood count was kind of galloping. I think it was doubling every half hour. (laughs) Within the next 24 hours... I was transferred to the intensive care unit for both the leukemia and apparently a massive lung infection. I don't think the two were connected, but there was some dispute in the hospital between the hematology department and the respiratory department. So I was given chemo for 24 hours a day for one week nonstop. I don't remember much of the next three weeks in ICU. But my wife, and she went through hell, my wife was told that I probably would not survive. So 
Sarah, I really never had any time to think about my diagnosis or to come to grips with my situation at that very time. Yeah, I feel like it just sprung upon you and you went straight into action or treatment mode. Exactly. That would bring me to my next question. When you were first diagnosed, what would have been the most helpful thing to know? What should have been shared with you? I would have liked to have known what was wrong, what was going on in my body, and what I would expect. That those are the three things that I think would help. When your doctor was determining how to treat your AML, what was the process like for you? I spent three weeks in ICU. I was intubated. I had an extremely high fever, and they were giving me all sorts of uh, blood transfusions. But by the same token, they didn't know what was going on with my lung. The three weeks in ICU were pretty, pretty bad. Probably worse for my wife. Uh, I didn't really know what was going on. My fever was approaching about 106, 107. They had me on an ice bed, an ice packed under my arms and in my groin. Uh, That was going on until the fever broke. And then they did an open lung biopsy to find out what was going on in the lungs. The next three months, I was in the Montreal hospital. Well, my wife actually had to make the move all by herself to Ottawa from her home in Montreal. But after I was released from ICU into a regular room, I felt pretty good, even though I was being given all sorts of blood transfusions, uh, more chemo, several bone marrow biopsies. I knew the situation then was serious. My hair was piling up on the pillow. I was even weaker than before, and I lost an awful lot of weight. But I made every attempt to become stronger and to to remain positive. You know, Sarah, I never really thought that I was that sick. I had a calendar, and I used to X off every day on the calendar. And I was always dressed. Every morning I got dressed. One day the medical team came around as they did every morning. And finally, one of the doctors said, why are you dressed? Well, you know, with my clothes on, I'm always ready to go home. But with a jogging gown on, I guess I'm staying in the hospital for a while. That's really positive. My wife was actually shocked at how positive I was because she thinks I'm a pretty negative person. I remember the day, it was September the 11th, Right. I was told then that I could be transferred to the Ottawa General for my second and final chemo consolidation. So at that time, things were looking up because I could go and visit my house, my new house. They let me go to the new house for two days and then right back into the Ottawa General. So I stayed there until Halloween. With these treatments that you were undergoing, and obviously you reached a point where you could leave the hospital and then return, did you have severe side effects? I know you touched a little bit upon the hair falling out and the weight loss. Emotions played a big part. Um, I tried to keep them under control. One night I had a very young nurse, and I was feeling pretty down. And I said, i got to call my wife. Well, she wasn't going to call my wife at 1 o'clock in the morning. 
She stayed with me for, oh, I would say probably almost two hours and talked with me. And I just needed someone to talk to at that time. You know, Sarah, I think the only side effects I had were the physical side effects, which were pretty observable, the hair loss, the weight loss. The emotional side effect was not there that often. It happened once. I had a real meltdown. But um, other than that, I kept myself busy. I read a lot. I did an awful lot of reading in the hospital. And um, I ate like a horse. I had to get out of there. I know you participated in a clinical trial. Could you share your experience about clinical trials and how it was? When I got transferred to the Ottawa General after being released from the Montreal Hospital, I had a hematologist who was waiting for me. He came to me almost the first day I was in the Ottawa General, and he said, I've been reading your file. And I think you would be a good candidate for a clinical trial, but it's with a different doctor. And there's going to be a team. They gave me, my wife and I, some literature, and they said, we want you to read it. And, you know, we're actually going to let you go home for two days and read this, and then you have to come back because we're going to give you another round of chemo. And you're going to tell us what your decision is. Well, we did. Um, We read it. We came back and we said, fine, what have we got to lose? I'll go for for the clinical trial. So I met with the new doctor, Dr. Vanderjack at the Ottawa General. He explained to me what was going on. And he said, um, there's a very specific schedule of uh, medication that you have to take and a very specific um, follow-up with blood tests on a regular basis. That was to be for four weeks. Four weeks into it, he met with my wife and I at the hospital. We came into the room, and he said, I have some bad news. Well, I said, oh, my gosh, what, what, what news is this? And he said, you actually haven't met the criteria or the standards required for you to continue in the trial. Yeah, and I think it's important to share that there's success with clinical trials, but there's also failures with clinical trials. In your case, you are a survivor, so you've had tremendous success with various treatments. I said to him, you know, that is not bad news. It's really good news. And he said, well, why are you saying that? I said, you know, since I've been on this medication, I feel like I'm slipping. I don't feel well. Um, Something bothering me. I want to get off this. So he said, okay, that's good. He said, but you know what? I'm not supposed to keep you as a patient, but I want to because you're an interesting case, and we do want to follow up with people who failed the clinical trial and use them as a sort of a a standard for, for other people. So I said, fine. If you want to keep me as a patient, what does this mean? He says, well, we're going to follow up with very regular visits, very regular blood tests, and more bone marrow biopsies. So I said, okay. And um, we had a weekly visit 
that went to a bi-weekly visit, that went to a monthly visit, that went to a two-month regular visit over the next five years. And then finally we went in five years later, this is now about 2008, and he said, um, do one more bone marrow biopsy. And um, he said, we're going to get the results within the next hour. So just go into the waiting room and uh, and I'll be back. And he came back and he said, well, I don't want to see you anymore. You've graduated. You know, Sarah, I had a real hard time with that. A real hard time with that. And he said, do you understand what I'm saying? I said, yes, but who's going to look after me? Who's going to check on me? He said, it's going to be your family doctor. So over the next few years, we kept in contact via my new family doctor here in Ottawa. I actually miss uh, the Dr. Vanderjack. He's now retired, but I did have an opportunity of seeing him last year because I wanted to get a vaccine for shingles. And there was something in the literature that said patients who have a blood disorder should perhaps check with their family doctor. So I called up Dr. Vanderjack, and he looked at the literature and said, no, no, you can go ahead and have it. He said, always glad to help a survivor, of my, a patient of mine. You're one of our strong First Connection AML volunteers. I, I feel like patients appreciate that connection to someone that's been diagnosed, can share their lived experience for it, sure. It, it is life-changing. No question about it. What could be more important in your life than dealing with something as, like this? Life-changing in the sense that I, I try not to worry about the little things anymore. You sort of put everything into perspective. And I've tried to help out both with being a, an advocate at the Ottawa General on a particular study that they were doing and helping um, you people out by talking to uh, recently diagnosed patients. I want to thank you so much for your time today and sharing your experience with AML. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you again, Michael. So for any of our listeners who have any questions about AML or need support to navigate their experience, I encourage you to connect with a community resource specialist near you. Please contact the LSC at 1-833-222-4884. You can also visit our website at lscanada.org. There you'll find fact sheets, booklets, and webcasts dedicated to learning more about your type of blood cancer. This podcast was made available thanks to the support of Celgene.